Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is again one of those names that was on my list of names to chase for the show when I first conceived the idea for this podcast back in the summer. He wasn't easy to track down. He's not even in this country anymore, but I'm glad I stuck at it because even his former club, the first of his clubs, that is, didn't know where he was There were a number of things I loved about this former player when I was a kid. His alliterative name put me in mind of some Marvel comic character. Think of Bruce Banner, Peter Parker, Matt Murdock, Stephen Strange. To that, you can add Paul Power. Paul was appointed Manchester City captain in his mid-twenties during what was Malcolm Allison's doomed second reign in the late 70s, and he'd hold on to that City armband for the next seven seasons until his move to Everton. Although the pedant in me would point out that armbands actually only came into English football at the start of the 85-86 season. Paul was a left-sided player and those guys always look a bit different, don't they? So there was the name, there was the left-sided business and also the 1976-81 Umbro home Man City strip with the uh, Umbro piping down the sides, all sky blue, including the shorts and with the wing collars. That remains possibly my favourite all-time football strip. Certainly it's in my top two or three. Kits, and that since childhood, to the extent that my mum, a gifted seamstress, made a tiny replica of that city strip for one of my Action Men dolls. In this interview, Paul speaks about doing a law degree while starting out at City. He looks back at the strong mid 70s City side that wasn't far off the title in 77. Then we look at the drama of the second Malcolm Allison era, the epic FA Cup run under John Bond and the semi-final free kick scored by the City captain, which remains one of my favourite all-time goals. And we round things off by looking at Paul's switch to Everton. Success came to him late in his career, but once he got to Goodison Park in the summer of 86, Paul Power didn't look out of place in one of Europe's top sides. This is Paul Power. You were born in Openshaw on Manchester's east side, where the Etihad is now. Where is that in relation to Main Road? 
It's about four or five miles, I would imagine, from uh, from Main Road. I was born there because my parents both lived in Openshaw, and my mum and dad, uh, I, I sort of lived with my mum's parents as a little baby. And then as soon as we were, you know, as soon as they were able to move across the city to um, uh, to Withenshaw, where there was a new council estate being built, then we did that as a family. So really, I only spent about 12 days in Openshaw and then um, we moved to Withenshaw. So I was pretty much brought up as a South Manchester lad, although I always had a, a Manchester City background. My mum and dad both supported City, you know, in, in, in view of the fact that they came from the east side of Manchester, which was predominantly blue. What are your first memories of the City teams that you followed as a young fan? Well, every Christmas I used to get a City kit, a brand new City kit. I always got a ball as well. So I, there was a little uh, square of grass in front of the, the house where we lived in uh, Portway in Withenshaw. I always remember the, the team that I supported was the Bell Lee Summerby era. But my favourite player of that time was, was Neil Young. You know, he was a tall, elegant left winger, not the bravest. You know, his nickname was Nelly because he never tackled anything really, but he created lots of things. And uh, I absolutely uh, loved him. And, you know, it always hurts me that it's not referred to as the Bell Lee Summerby Young era because I think he had just as much to contribute to that time as, uh, as the other three. I, re- I remember people like George Heslop and Cliff Sear who, you know, would have played uh, for City sort of in the in the early 60s. But then, I mean, I was born in 1953, so I'd have been about seven or eight then. I didn't really start taking a, a strong interest in the team until I started playing, really, at junior school when I used to go to St Anthony's Primary School in Withenshaw. And I, I sort of played in the in the school team, age 10 and 11. That was when I started to uh, really appreciate and start to go and watch City play. There was a bus that used to run on match days from uh, Withenshire Town Centre to um, uh, to Main Road. Even at the age of like 10, 11, 12, I used to get on that bus on my own. Felt totally safe. There was never any problem getting there or getting home. And that was round about the era, era that I started to watch. So that would have been about 1964, you know, maybe 65. So so that's the Bell Lee Summerby era that I'm, uh, that I'm talking about. I used to go and stand on the Kipax, uh, you know, and they'd sort of all pass the little kids down to the front so that we could see good memories, uh, particularly on the bus journey on the way home when, you know, all the old folks were uh, sort of discussing who played well and who hadn't. So when I started to play for City, I could just imagine the same thing going on. (laughs) It's interesting when I talk to former players and they talk about growing up and where they first used to play football. And you've already mentioned uh, some patch of grass near your house where you used to kick a ball about. And every former player that I interviewed, they always remember that first spot where they really learned how to kick a ball. That obviously, given how built up, areas are now that doesn't really happen now does it and maybe it doesn't need to happen because we've got the academies etc but you guys really often were kicking a ball just against the wall weren't you well yeah I mean at at the end of my career I worked for the PFA on the community program in professional football and 
the reason that that became prevalent and provided coaching opportunities for young children in schools and was was because it just doesn't happen anymore on the street. You know, we used to play on the road in front of, uh, when I was about eight, we moved from Portway in Withenshaw to uh, Oatlands Road and it wasn't as busy a road. Uh, so we'd, uh, you know, we'd play little games like Kirby where you had to sort of uh, touch touch the curb on the other side of the road. You know, there were there were lots of little games that we used to play in uh, really tight areas. And I know Pat Nevin did a did a little promotion about where he played in the alleyways in Scotland. You know, life was totally different then than it is these days, yeah. You're on City's radar early on. You're spotted by their chief scout, Harry Godwin. You're initially training with their schoolboys. But I think first time around, you stopped going as you were never chosen for uh, for the game at the end. Uh, why did you feel you weren't being chosen for these games? And at that point, when you stopped, did you feel that might be you done with football? The reason I didn't play in the games at the end was because I was physically too small. And I think they were they were looking after me as much as, um, you know, sort of not giving me the opportunity. It was It, it was for my own good, if you like. Because then we used to train on a Tuesday and a Thursday night. We, we had two uh, senior coaches, Dick and Fred. They used to have about 30 lads there, all from, well, I started going probably when I was about 12 or 13. They were up to uh, under 16s there, so schoolboy age. So there were 30 lads all aged from like uh, 12 or 13 to 16. So you can imagine the difference in the physical development. They used to do a lot of uh, skill practices, little little things with the ball. They'd do a little bit of running up and down the stand at um, Cheadle Town. We used to we used to train at, and then at the end they'd they'd always have a game, and the the, the smaller ones tended to be left out. And that was uh, it was me that got frustrated. Nobody at City uh, asked me to stop going, but I got a little bit frustrated that I never played in the in in the games at the end. And um, I left City when I was about 15. And then I was actually selected uh, to play for Manchester Boys under-18s team. So that, that was when I was in the sixth form. I stayed on it at school to do A-levels. Played for Manchester Boys under-18s team. And we were playing against Ayrshire Boys. Harry w- uh, was watching that game and obviously knew me because he'd, he'd introduced me to the club in the first place. And then, uh, you know, sort of got another, uh, I got a second bite of the cherry, if you like, by which time I'd applied to go to university to study law. But then, I, you know, I sort of got straight into the, uh, well, I played one game for the B team, which was more under 16s age group. And then I played for the A team, which was uh, the Lancashire A team was uh, sort of under 18s. And then I, I stayed there. I decided that I would continue doing the law as long as, I passed my exams at the end of each year. So I didn't have to make a decision about signing for City or, you know, nobody was under pressure to uh, to invite me to sign for City. So that was it. I carried on at university, which was Leeds Polytechnic, actually. But I studied a, a, a London uh, University law degree externally, if you know what I mean. And then I used to go home every weekend to play for either the A-team in the early years and then the reserves in the later years. So um, it worked out really well for me. I enjoyed it. 
was the law degree something you'd always wanted to do? And even when City had come in for you, did you still harbour any ambitions to go into law? I never harboured any ambitions to go into law. It would never, ever compete with football, in my opinion, in my dad's opinion. But my mum was a, an academic, you know, and she wanted me to become a doctor because she she was the matron secretary at Withenshire Hospital. She would have been delighted if I'd gone into medicine, but, you know, I wasn't very good at sciences at school. I was more into the arts. Uh, so I decided that it was too much of a risk to rely on football. I'd never played, you know, I played a couple of uh, reserve team games. I'd never been anywhere near the first team. I decided to uh, to take the law degree as an insurance, really, in case uh, nothing happened with the football. A couple of shows back, I interviewed your old teammate, Joe Corrigan, and like you, he went to a rugby playing school. Now, for some reason, as a Southerner, and admittedly someone who doesn't know too much about rugby, I'm surprised when Northern ex-pro footballers tell me they were playing rugby union as a schoolboy, because I, I would have thought if you were playing some rugby up there, it would have been rugby league. <laughs> no, 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 grammar schools. You okay. know, uh, at grammar schools, it was always uh, it was always rugby union. Like mine was a Catholic grammar school, and the head teacher was very old school, Oxbridge, you know, uh, rugby game. The pride in, in the school team to have a good rugby uh, background. But my sportsmaster, a fellow called Denny Howells, who was really instrumental in teaching me an awful lot. Uh, about looking forward to a football career. He ran the, 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 the football team. He was a former semi-pro footballer himself. He was keen that people would play for Manchester Boys football team rather than just Manchester Boys rugby team. The, the headmaster didn't agree. Anyway, in the end, we had a meeting with him, with my dad, and the headmaster, uh, Father McGuinness. You know, we sort of put our case and said... I didn't want to play rugby. I didn't play rugby every Saturday. I played football for the team and I had this opportunity to, to represent my town. So he relented, Father McGuinness relented in the end. And, uh, and that was thanks to the sort of uh, intervention, if you like, of, uh, of Denny Howells, who was, uh, who was a superb teacher. So Johnny Hart, I think, is the manager that wants to sign you at City. And as you've said, that was never in any doubt because the law degree was just an insurance for you. Football was your first love. Now, having any degree is probably still unusual in football, maybe more unusual now. But around that time that you were coming through, I remember there was Steve Highway at Liverpool. There was Steve Couple at United. And it was always mentioned that they were graduates. Brian, Brian Hall was another one at Liverpool as well. Yeah, yeah. Were you in any way regarded as an outsider initially or viewed with suspicion by teammates because you had a very different background? Um, I don't know. It's difficult to say, really. You'd have to ask them that. But no, I never, I never got that impression. You know, I, was, uh, I played regular reserves. I used to travel home from, uh, from Leeds either midweek sometimes if we'd play at... Uh, in fact, if we'd play at, at Leeds or... Newcastle or the the northeastern uh, teams, the the bus would pick me up on the way, and then you know I'd, I'd play sort of an evening game if there was one, or otherwise I'd just come home on a Friday afternoon, and then uh, we'd play. We always used to play our res the reserve team games at Main Road on a Saturday afternoon when the first team were away. 
and uh, they used to give me expenses to cover rail travel at home. My mum and dad had a pub, so I used to work on a Friday night behind the bar and a Saturday night behind the bar and then a Sunday lunchtime. So, you know, I was able to earn some money as a student and also City were paying my expenses uh, uh, to come home. So I was quite wealthy as a student, I suppose, because, you know, I was sort of uh, being looked after, although it was a bit of an inconvenience to, to, to have to work every weekend, but something else that I enjoyed as well because there were some characters in the book. Speaking as someone who's never played the game to any decent level, there was something I'd never heard just until this week. And it came in an interview I saw with one of the players you would have been coaching in your time at Everton, Martin Keown. And he was talking about, as a young player, coming into the game, signing for Arsenal, and the complete shock of having to work with the ball day in, day out. He'd never experienced that. I'd never heard that before. Digging around researching, preparing this interview with you. I saw you say a similar thing in an interview that one of the big adjustments for you on getting involved at City after the law degree when you were inching towards the first team, the shock for you was adjusting to training with a ball every day. And can you break down the stages of that adjustment? Why why does that come as a shock to any budding footballer? It wasn't so much training with the ball every day, but that combined with the physicality of coaching every day was a, a real shock to my system. I, I remember when I first came into the first team, uh, Gary Owen came into the first team as well. And uh, the head of physiotherapy at Manchester City was a rugby man. He, he, was, he was a physio at uh, Sale Rugby Club. I was about 10 and a half stone, having lived off tins of beans while I was a student <laughs> for three years. Gary Owen was about two or three years younger than me and was just making his way into the first team and was really slightly built as well and always was throughout his career, to be fair. So we were put with this, with this monster. He had us doing squat thrusts. And if we, if we uh, slowed down in during, during the squat thrusts, he'd kick us in the ribs. And you know, I mean, that was just the way then. That was his way. How, and he, was just, he wasn't being cruel. He was just uh, trying to toughen us up and, and prepare us for, uh, you know, what we were going to, you know, come up against at weekend when I, when I was up against Tommy Smith, who uh, would have probably done the same thing. It was that and the ball work. It was a combination of everything, really. That physio, I read an interview with you and you mentioned him, Freddie Griffiths, and just I think it was just a couple of paragraphs on him and it just sounded brutal. I mean, there's no way anyone could get away with that now. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, exactly. And I think Gary Owen actually complained to his dad and, the, and he, his dad came down to, uh, to speak to Tony Book, who was manager at the time. And I think, I think Bookie had to have a word with uh, Fred just to say, you know, ease up a little bit with the, with the younger ones, you know. And uh, whereas now physiotherapists at the football club would gauge what you're capable of and set a programme for individuals, you know, um, to work differently at different levels. So I couldn't lift the same weights as Joe Corrigan, but I was expected to be able to. It was a little bit ludicrous. It was a bit before the, 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 the physical fitness aspects came into football because it was never a part of the, the football qualifications. When I finished football and I was working for the PFA, 
we put together a coaching program which was designed to develop everybody individually. And I was helped by uh, uh, by an English lad who was who worked at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, and they'd written into their coaching qualifications, you know, the importance of uh, all sorts of aspects of uh, physical development. So I think you'll find now that the uh, the coaching qualifications, when players go and decide that they want to become a coach at the end of their career, uh, there's a lot more information ready for them, you know, than than the, than they used to be for coaches when I was when I was a young player. You make your debut for City at Villa in the 75-76 season under Tony Book. I think in your career, he was the longest serving manager you had, if I'm right. What was he like to play for? Bookie was exactly as a manager, how he was as a player. He was um, unassuming, quite supportive, you know, in, in all aspects, really, because he came into the, to the game from being a bricklayer. Uh, at the age of about 32, I think, when he when he signed for City. So he would have understood, you know, my situation, having come into the game directly from uh, from being a student for three years. So he was really supportive, but he also had good people around him. Uh, Dave Ewing was the, uh, my um, reserve team manager. And Glyn Pardo, who, you know, had to finish his career as a result of a, an injury in a horrendous tackle involving George Best, I think it was. And he was actually coming back as a left-back, playing in the reserves regularly, and I was playing just in front of him. So he was a fantastic help to me as well. And I think he probably reported back to, to Tony Book, who he knew well. Later on, Glyn became a coach under Bookie as well. Like They, they, they both helped me uh, to develop as a young professional. That team you come into of the mid-70s, that City team for a time threatened to emulate that first great City team of the Mercer-Allison era. They, Well, you seem to have a, a really good balance between very experienced players and young local kids coming through, such as yourself. There was, I think, Kenny Clements, Gary Owen, Peter Barnes. Tell us about that team, its strengths and that first season of playing with them. Uh, the the players that you um, that you talk about were, were all local Manchester lads, but there, there, there were others uh, more experienced, like Joe Corrigan, uh, Alan Oakes, Glenn Pardo, Tommy Booth. There was another lad called Jed Keegan who was uh, a contemporary of ours. Didn't quite make it at City, but he uh, he played in the nineteen seventy six League Cup final. Kenny Clements was was like my best mate. Tony Henry, who was a from the from the northeast, uh, but came through City's ranks, got into the first team as well. And I think there was always an opportunity for for uh, Manchester lads to do well at Manchester City. In fact, I've got to say, I think it's a, a disappointing aspect. Although City are playing some fantastic football at the moment, but there's only Phil Foden who's putting the mank in Manchester City at the moment. There's no other Manchester players. Whereas in my day, I mean, we played in the 1976 semi-final uh, of the of the League Cup against Middlesbrough. We played away in the first leg, and there were ten out of the eleven were Manchester-born. I think the only one uh, would have either been, I think it was Asa Hartford, but it might have been Dennis Stewart. But either way, we had a nice mix of uh, experienced 
players that have been brought to the club, like Dennis and uh, Asa. Uh, and then, um, you know, we had, a, we had young players that were pushing uh, for their places all the time as well. So we had a nice mix of both at that time. You win the League Cup in 76, beaten Newcastle, but uh, you rule yourself out as you weren't fully fit. At that time, are you thinking, I'm only 22, I've got plenty of time to win something with City? There was a, there was a director at Manchester City called Michael Horwich who had his own solicitor practice, uh, Horwich, Farrelly and Flats. And um, he invited me to go into his office because I wasn't sure whether... Even though I'd signed a pro contract, I mean, my first professional contract at City was 40 quid a week. Right. Um, and I was, I was 20 years of age. You know, the, the, the money wasn't, uh, wasn't around at that time. And I might have been sort of financially as well off going into law. So he invited me to go into his office and keep my eye in with the law just in case, um, you know, things didn't work out in football. Fortunately for me, they did. And um, I combined the two for quite a while. And then uh, I decided to uh, put all my eggs in one basket, as it were. And uh, especially after the uh, the cup final in 76 and then uh, the arrival of Malcolm Allison and then going to become, well, becoming established and then becoming captain of Manchester City during Mal's period. And then John Bond took over and, uh, you know, sort of transformed the team, really. Uh, kept me on as captain. He was possibly, as, along with Howard Kendall, possibly the the most trust I've ever had in a manager. The, the, the sort of things he used to say to you to lift you, individually I'm talking about. John Bond and uh, Howard Kendall were, were superb at getting into your mind in a good way. Just after the League Cup final, you've established yourself as a regular at City. City miss out on the title by just a point in 76-77, finishing second to one of the strongest sides in Liverpool's history. Given that you'd won the League Cup in 76, had you won that title, it was clear that the team was set up for success. Would it have been a springboard for bigger things? Would would it have led to a, another period of domination for City? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because we had some... Um... Uh, some star players, uh, you know, around about that time. I'm not sure, I might be wrong here, but the likes of uh, Mick Shannon and uh, Brian Kidd and uh, Dennis Stewart, and Asa Hartford, all top international players. Dave Watson came into the side around about that time. Uh, the, the, the Manchester City Dave Watson, as opposed to the Everton Dave Watson, I played with two in my career. Like We had some really good players. Against that, of course, is that injury to Colin Bell. And it's a question that I always feel compelled to ask City players of your time, given how good your mid-70s City team was. I mean, a fit Colin Bell surely makes the difference between missing out on the title by just a point. Yeah, 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 absolutely. He was, um, I mean, his nickname was Nijinsky. He was an athlete, a supreme athlete. We had players at City who could run forever. So the likes of Alan Oakes and Mike Doyle and myself to that degree and, and Frank Carradis, we could run for the long distance running. Colin Bell would be just uh, sidling up alongside us, not knowing that he could have gone ahead whenever he wanted to, but he just uh, stayed at the front, talking away, you know, as if <laughs> and we're breathing through our blinking uh, every orifice that you can imagine. He's like chatting away. 
Then we had players who were superb sprinters, like so Francis Lee and Glyn Pardo. So at the end of the uh, of the uh, running session, they would be up the front in the sprints. Belly would be up in, in the sprints as well with them, you know. So he was a, a supreme athlete and a, a wonderful bloke and really nice man. Never swore. The worst he ever said was Ruddy. You're Ruddy nuisance. So he, he, he just never swore and, and sort of seemed to take umbrage if other players swore in the dressing room you know what I mean so he was a a true gentleman and a a helpful colleague Uh, you know he was just a he was just a top man and when he you know I'm not surprised that he went into coaching because it would have been his forte to to uh, to assist young players to come through. In 77-78 you finished fourth 10 points behind Forest but obviously top four you'd get Champions League for that these days so the team really is still in pretty good shape. I think around that time, during the latter period of Tony Book's reign, Dennis Stewart has already left the Cosmos and Washington diplomats come in for you. Was there a part of you that fancied that move? Um, but you can tell by my hesitation that there probably was, you know. Yeah. I'd actually been approached by, oh my goodness, the, 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 the manager of uh, New York Cosmos at the time, he used to be at Sheffield United, and I can't remember his name now, but um, he obviously needed a, a winger. There was an opportunity that I might go there, but when I spoke to Tony Book and then to Peter Swales, because he was the man that made all the decisions in the end anyway, it was decided that they didn't want me to go, so that wasn't an option. And then I got this approach from uh, Washington diplomats and the same and I was given the same answer really you know so um, I think it would have been difficult for for City at that time to let me go because they didn't really have a replacement when I eventually went to Everton it was good business for me and for Manchester City because they had Andy Hinchcliffe coming up you know as a 19 year old left back you know so it, it was a good time for me to leave but maybe at that period uh, when I was just becoming established, I was about 26, 27 in my prime, if you like. We didn't have agents then, so you were told by the club whether you were going or not, really. And uh, whether I'd have fancied going to Washington, you know, I didn't get the opportunity. In 79, there is what is now viewed as a very strange decision to sideline Tony Book and bring Malcolm Allison back. Uh, I wonder if you have a different take on that, because obviously Allison saw something in you. He makes you team captain. You're coming into your mid-20s at that time. The team, though, at that period, you start to lose a lot of your older players. And so you are still relatively young and you're captaining an even younger team as Malcolm Allison sets about stripping the team of most of its older players. Were you worried about the direction City were going in? I wasn't particularly worried at that time, although I didn't agree with, you know, some of the some of the decisions that Mal made. Mal was um, was a coach. He wasn't a manager. When he had his success with Joe Mercer, Joe Mercer was always there to sort of keep his feet on the ground, if you like. Although I, I wasn't part of that era, I could imagine that Mal would be introducing all these uh, new ideas and Joe Mercer, as the old guard, would have been saying, hey, now, just hang on a bit. And I'm sure if Tony Book had been uh, able to do the same, then we might have got a, a nice blend. But Mal became sort of all... Powerful, if you like. 
having been Tony Buck's boss during the good times, uh, it was always uh, difficult for, for Bucky to um, keep his feet on the ground a little bit and just tell him, you know, to slow down. Because Mal just loved athletes. You know, I think that's why he made me captain, because I was a good athlete. He brought in Tommy Caton, Nicky Reed, who could run forever, uh, Ray Ranson, who was a good athlete. But he also allowed players to go, uh, like Dave Watson, the, the centre-half, Kazu Dana was a, an absolutely fantastic midfield player, but you know, with the best will in the world, Kazi didn't do did, he didn't do much for the team when the opposition had the ball. And I think Mel was pretty forward thinking, and you know, he, he wanted players that could play when we had the ball, and he wanted players that could win it back when the opposition had the ball. And that's what you see today on the you know like Liverpool's front three work just as hard when the opposition have got the ball as they do uh, when their own team have got the ball. And he, he, he was looking for that. But he allowed players, good players like uh, Brian Kidd. He didn't fancy Asa Hartford. I think because he'd made Tony Buck a hero, bringing Tony Buck from non-league football, I think he thought he could do it with lots of players. So we had, we had players like Paul Sugru and Bobby Shinton and... Uh, a couple of others, there was a lad called Dave Whiffle who he brought from non-league as well. Like, And it was just too much, really. You know, there were there was too much inexperience in the side. It just needed a minor adjustment. And then John Bond came and, and introduced only three players, but they were experienced players. So there was Jerry Gow, who gave us a little bit of bite in midfield. Tommy Hutchison, who uh, gave us some uh, guile in the wide positions, and Bobby MacDonald, who played at left-back and allowed me to, to go sort of uh, up into left midfield, if you like. He just needed a couple of adjustments and, and some tempering of his ideas, you know, to, to make it successful during his period. We'll come to the John Bond era in a moment. Uh, just before we do, do you think players that were brought in for big money, such as Steve Daly and, and Michael Robinson, do you think that they were affected by the pressure of their price tags? I think Steve definitely was, you know, both great blokes, by the way, different characters. Steve was not, considering he'd just been bought for a million pounds, he wasn't a confident player at all, you know, and he, he'd probably say that he, well, he, he does after dinner speaking now, and I've heard him, and he said that when he saw the chairman after he'd signed, uh, the chairman said, well, who are you? And he said, <laughs> I'm Steve Daly. And no, I told Mel to sign Jerry Daly. <laughs> you know, so, but I'm sure that's not true, but it's uh, it's one of his uh, after-dinner stories. But, you know, he, he wasn't a, a confident lad considering uh, the price tag. Trevor Francis, when he came, was superbly confident, you know, in, in, uh, in everything that he did. Steve was slightly different. Michael Robinson was different. Again, he, he had overconfidence in his ability. You know, he, he used to say, feed the bear, feed the bear on the far post and... You know, he sort of uh, he'd make statements in the dressing room that were above his ability level, if you like. And when we had players in the dressing room that were internationals, you know, they'd maybe sort of scorn on that a little bit. But Steve was never like that. And I think because he was lacking confidence, when the crowd started to get onto him a little bit, his confidence sunk even lower. And uh, as a result, his performances just deteriorated. Like you know, but football is a game of confidence. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, you look at Liverpool now, and 
you know, uh, the, the, the fact that they lose a couple of games, all of a sudden they lose four games. You know, we, we had that period uh, when Steve was at City and Mal was there as well. The, the, the team went out a little bit frightened, you know, and couldn't impose their personality on, uh, on other teams the way they would have wanted to. And you mentioned earlier Dave Watson was one of the players sold, and this was a, a centre-half who would still have a, another three years left in the England team, amass something like 60-something caps. And also another England regular at the time was sold, Peter Barnes, still a young left winger. Again, and Gary Owen, and Gary yeah. Owen, by the way, because they, they both went to West Brom there. Yeah, so, you know, people obviously saw uh, something in those two good young players. Uh, but they they weren't athletes, you know. Bouncy was great with the ball at his feet, but if the fullback ran past him, he wouldn't chase him back. He didn't see that as his prime responsibility. His prime responsibility was to create chances for others. And to be fair, his dad, Ken Barnes, was of exactly the same uh, mindset. So I would imagine he would have fed Peter lots of sort of information that that didn't tie with. Mal's idea of what a wide player should be like, and that that was possibly why uh, he was uh, allowed to move on a little bit. But Gary was a was a creative midfield player as well. Probably not physically strong enough for Mal's idea of the perfect footballing athlete, and so he, he allowed them both to go. But I'm not sure he replaced them with better quality players. Just before Malcolm Allison does uh, eventually depart, one of the low points of that 79-80 season was the third round FA Cup defeat at Halifax. And that game, as everything else seems to be, is on YouTube. And it's an absolute bog of a pitch. Mm -hmm. It's incredible how uh, some of the games that you guys used to play in that era, uh, you can't play football on a pitch like that. Well, to be fair, the, the fourth round of the FA Cup was always a bit of a lottery. Because uh, I remember when we when Mal was uh, manager as well, we were drawn Shrewsbury away. We we were staying in a hotel in Shrewsbury. It was it was like about minus fifteen degrees. <laughs> the pitch was absolutely rock hard, and there was a pitch inspection at nine o'clock in the morning. So Malcolm Allison and Tony Butt went along for the pitch inspection, and they the officials had completed it at half past eight in the morning, and uh, passed the game fit to play which was a bit of a joke, to be fair. But anyway, that, that was another lottery of a pitch. So, you, you know, it, it was it was, either, it was either lots of rain and a, a boggy pitch as it was at Halifax or, or it was a bone-hard pitch uh, due to the frost, you know, in early January. But no excuses. You know, I mean, we just didn't play on the day. I remember some, somebody played the ball from the right. Bobby Shinton was in the middle of the goal. The ball had actually gone past the goalkeeper, the Halifax goalkeeper, uh, who was protecting the near post. And uh, the, the ball went to round about the penalty spot. Bobby Shinton was just about to side foot it into an empty net and it stuck in a puddle right about a foot before it came onto his uh, boot, you know. And I think Mal was reportedly bewitched by some woman who, uh, who, who said she was, you know, setting traps for his teams and everything. And uh, he, he just seemed to upset uh, all the wrong people, really. But we had some horrendous performances, but some really good ones. You know, sort of when John Bond took over, the same set of players, almost. 
and you climb up the table, you lose just three games, three league games in four months when John Bond arrives. You get to the League Cup semi-finals and push Liverpool all the way in those two legs. In the FA Cup, those memories of Halifax the previous season are put to bed. You've got a, you go on a brilliant run, and I think you end up scoring in every round, bar one and the final itself. What do you recall about that run? Yeah, I remember we played, um, we played Norwich. John Bond had, had uh, come from Norwich, uh, and we ended up playing Norwich at Main Road. We beat them six-one, and Kevin Bond, who's a, a lovely lad as well. He played centre half for Norwich. You know, there was a there was a, a, a sort of a tremendous sort of uh, family atmosphere between John and Kevin. Kevin signed for City uh, later on in his career, and yeah, he, he, John, I remember John Bond jumping down from the uh, uh, from the director's box to to sort of uh, embrace his son. You know, after a after a trouncing, really. And then we went on to play. Uh, we played Peterborough. We, we actually came into our own probably in the quarter-final against Everton at Goodison Park. I remember Jerry Gow scored from a free kick. Kevin Reeves played really well. I ended up scoring the equaliser that day, just lobbing it over um, over their keeper. Uh, I've got a photograph of, of me actually scoring that goal, and there's a picture of Mick Lyons, uh, centre-half at uh, Everton. And then when I went to Everton later, he was reserve team manager and I used to take the photograph in to uh, wind him up every now and then like you know Jim McDonough was a the goalkeeper then uh, and then we played that was the quarter fan we, we we had the replay at uh, Main Road and I scored again a 1v1 with the keeper which is in my opinion the best goal I ever scored in my career didn't you have a one-on-one as well at the San Siro against Milan did you score a, at Milan yeah, I did. I did, but that wasn't a one-on-one. That was okay. uh, that was just a run from the edge of our box to the edge of their box, and then I actually, I actually came inside because I was on the right side of the pitch. So I came inside on my left foot. This young lad was out facing me up, like, and I took him inside and I, I curled, I, I curled the, the ball in. But that was from the edge of the box, so it was a shot that beat the goalkeeper rather than taking it up to the goalkeeper and slotting it past it, which, which, uh, which was the situation in the replay against Everton. The semi-final, you come up against one of the best sides in Europe at that time, Ipswich. We were, we were that much underdogs. That, uh, I was going out with um, my wife at, at present. I was going out with her at the time. and Her three brothers were Man United fans. Her eldest brother, Billy, used to follow United all over Europe. And he said to me, he said, if you beat Ipswich in the semis, he said, I'll wear all blue at Wembley, you know. So uh, it was great. I mean, and then when we did actually get to Wembley, I looked up to where the family were and he was there. He had a big blue flag, a blue jumper, blue trousers, but he put his foot up on the, on the hoardings and uh, he had red socks on. So uh, he said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it like, you know, so he, uh, so, but we used to have always a little bit of banter about uh, stuff like that. So we were definitely underdogs for that game against Ipswich. They had the two uh, Dutch lads, uh, Muren and Tyson. They had Mick Mills, uh, Paul Mariner. They, they had a really strong team, BT and others like. So we weren't expected to win. But then, you know, that went into extra time. The game went into extra time. As I was walking towards the halfway line for extra time, Eric Gates came up to me with his boots under his arm 
And uh, I said, um, I think you'll find there's extra time now. And he said, oh, you're joking, aren't you? You can have it. So I thought, well, I hope all your mates feel the same way. Anyway, we won this free kick on the edge of the box. Dave Bennett was, it was uh, fouled. I'm not sure whether it was. But anyway, we got the free kick. We'd set up so that the ball was touched to me. And then when the player comes off the end of the wall to close the ball down, which invariably happened then, I would knock it on again for Tommy Caton to leather it with his much better left foot than mine. But anyway, nobody came off the end of the wall. Brian Kidd always used to say, if you don't buy a raffle ticket, you won't win a prize, you know. So I thought, here's my moment to buy a raffle ticket. The goalkeeper wasn't the biggest, Paul Cooper. So the ball was rolled to me. Nobody came off the end of the wall to close it. So I, uh, I, I sort of, in for a penny, in for a pound, really, and I had a strike at goal. And fortunately for me, it, uh, it was the best decision I ever made in my life, like, you know, apart from marrying Julie because she's just about to get me a cup of tea. <laughs> I never get tired of watching that goal. It, it is one of my favourite goals from my childhood. Did you practice those in training? Yeah, we we always used to finish off training sessions, you know, from with free kicks from different uh, areas of the goal. We'd, we'd practice the routine, lay it to me, I'd lay it to Tommy Caton. So, yeah, yeah, we we were familiar with the situation. So it wasn't new to me, although I'd never done it in a game. Glenn Hoddle, on the other hand, would have done it all the time in the game. And if you remember, he used to bend the ball a little bit like Ward Prowse does now. He could bend the ball in over the wall and get it in the top corner uh, when the goalkeeper was protecting the other side of the goal, if you like. So when we got to the cup final, Tommy Hutchison and Joe Corrigan were having a little bit of a discussion during one of the practices uh, that we'd done prior to the FA Cup final. And Joe said, Tommy, don't move off the end of the wall because if he can get the ball up and down and into that top corner, full marks to him, I'll protect this side of the goal. But Tommy was intent on dropping off so that if the ball hit the post or the bar, he'd be first one to win the rebound, you see. Anyway, we, well, that's history now, but Tommy dropped off the wall uh, and the ball hit his shoulder and then went in the other side of the goal uh, that Joe wasn't protecting. So, you know, you agree things in training and then in the heat of the game, you know, players maybe react differently and uh, respond differently. The replay, what was the main contributing factor to, to the defeat or one of the contributing factors? Was it that some of the older players such as Tommy Hutchinson and Jerry Gow didn't have the legs for a, a second game on that Wembley pitch in five days or was it down to you essentially were still a very young side? They're probably a combination of both, actually. But the back four was round about average age, 20 year old, really. You know, I mean, it was uh, apart from Bobby McDonald. But, you know, we had uh, Tommy Caton, Nicky Reid and Ray Ransom, uh, who were all youngsters, all good athletes. These were players that, that came into the side when uh, during Malcolm Allison's era. I tell you, if, the, if that first game would have been played to a conclusion, the, the first final, their players were dropping all over the pitch. You know, the, the Wembley pitch was famous for, uh, for bringing on cramp and everything. Their players were falling about Ozzy Ardiles and uh, uh, Glenn Hoddle, the, the, the left winger, who I can't remember his name at the moment. They were all... Galvin. Uh, Galvin, yeah, Tony Galvin, that's right. 
and they were all suffering sort of more severely than than we were. But then I think the second game was just a, a, like a, a bridge too far for us because we'd given everything uh, in the first game. And then when we couldn't close the ball down probably as efficiently as we did in the first game, then players like Glenn Hoddle and Ozzy Ardiles, who'd get a little bit more time on the ball, would uh, get more time to play a telling pass that might uh, cause you problems. Even that game, we went 2-1 up. And Steve McKenzie scored the best goal for me ever in an FA Cup final. It was a fantastic volley from the edge of the box. But nobody ever remembers it because Ricky Villa had that Maisie dribble uh, at the end. And, you know, I think if we'd have coped with dealing with Ricky Villa outside the box before he got into the box, once he'd got into the box, you can't tackle him because, you know, he he had quick feet um, and we shouldn't have let him get into the box really. But we didn't deserve to lose that game. You know, having been 2-1 up after Reeves he scored the penalty, I think, didn't he? And, um, but we just didn't have the legs to see the game out. You know, they, they finished a little bit stronger than us on the second game. Still to come on this week's When Shorts Were Short. John Bond came up to me and said, I've just had a phone call off uh, Ron Atkinson. He wants you to sign for United. What do you think? And I said, do me a favour, boss. I said, I couldn't sign for United. Like, you know, I've been captain City for so many years and always supported City and probably said bad things about United <laughs> and players. And I said, no, no. I said, I'd never be accepted. And so Bondy said, uh, good, because I told him to <laughs> fly. Eighty-one, eighty-two is a is an interesting season. There's quite a few arrivals at Main Road. Asa Hartford comes back. Kevin Bond, who you mentioned earlier, he's signed by John Bond. Martin O'Neill arrives at some point. There's Trevor Francis. Surprisingly, just after the season starts, he comes from Forest. And you're topping the table briefly at Christmas. I think you were out for a couple of months that season, from November to. January. So the first half of the season has gone really well for City, but then there's this dramatic slide down the table in the spring. What happened? No, I really don't know. I don't know whether we had uh, injuries to key players. I I can't remember, to be fair, because as you said, I had um, knee problems then and I was out for like with knee ligament trouble for quite a long time in that season. I remember coming back, we, we travelled to play a friendly in Bordeaux, of all places. That was my first game back, and I did okay. And then um, there were the three Johns. There was John Sainty, who was the coach, uh, John Bond, who was the manager, and John Benson, who was the assistant manager. And he came and sat next to me on the plane on the way back and said, what do you think about playing on Saturday? And, you know, and I said, yeah, I felt okay tonight. You know, I, I think I'll be all right. But And then I remember playing. And then the season just, uh, you know, just went away from us. And I, I do, I do remember a specific incident, you know, for the the, the Luton game uh, when we played uh, Luton at the end of at the end of the season. This is after John Bond has has gone, isn't it? Eighty two, eighty three, at the end That's of that right. season. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, the, there were things that happened off the pitch, and I, I don't want to really discuss what they were, but. One of the players was uh, was having problems at home, and I think it affected certainly him, but other people in the dressing room as well. And uh, the, the week before, we'd gone away to 
the south coast and we, we ended up getting a result. So that it meant that all we needed to do was draw at home against Luton. Well, yeah, we just weren't able to do that. And it was just, that, that was the lowest point in my career, to be fair. That I played all my career in the first division and then, uh, you know, now I was, I was going to be uh, sort of demoted into the second division, as it were. Had you considered a move that summer to stay in the first division? No, and it, it never came about. John Bond came up to me and said, I've just had a phone call off uh, Ron Atkinson. He wants you to sign for United. What do you think? And I said, do me a favour, boss. I said, I couldn't sign for United. Like, you know, I've been captain City for so many years and always supported City and probably said bad things about United <laughs> and players. And I said, no, no. I said, I'd never be accepted. And so Bondy said, uh, good, because I told him to <laughs> fly. There was an inquiry from Spurs at one point, but I think that was earlier on in my career. Um, so really, you know, it wasn't an option to leave until Billy McNeil uh, took over. And that was when circumstances changed. It took a couple of seasons for City to make it back up to the old first division. Looking at that 84-85 squad, quite a bit of a experience in that team. Kenny Clements was back. A player I always thought was very underrated, Neil McNabb, was in there. Graham Baker, Jim, uh, Jim Melrose, James Tommy. So, and you had kids again coming through as there always seemed to be at City. You always seem to have kids coming through. Alex Williams in goal, Paul Simpson, Steve Kinsey. Did you feel that that squad needed a bit of work to do something in the first division in 85, 86? Yeah, and I'm sure, I'm sure the, uh, the management and directors felt that that was the case as well. But Again, all, all the local players that you mentioned there, I, I mean, you, you didn't mention Andy May. He was a big part of the game that we played against Charlton when we uh, went up and got promoted to uh, the first division. And uh, we had a mixture then of Scottish players because Billy McNeil was the manager and Billy McNeil knew all the Scots. So he brought in players like Derek Parlane, Gordon Smith, Neil McNabb, uh, Jim told me. In the end, it got to, it probably got to the point where there were more Scots in the squad than there were English players. And we used to we used to have a Billy McNeil used to love to wind players up. So on a Friday morning, we used to have a, a five aside England against Scotland. Well, on a Saturday, we never had any fit players because everyone was just kicking each other on a on a Friday morning. When I went to Everton, Friday morning training was just a, a game of head tennis. No contact. Centre-halves would go and head a few balls. You know, it was all just easy, easy preparation for the game the following day. So it's not to say that Billy McNeil's idea didn't work because we uh, we got promotion uh, that year from the second division. Uh, but totally different styles of management, like, you know, between him and uh, Howard. Summer of 86, your time at City comes to an end and we're about to enter the final part of your career and it's one of the best endings that any career could have. How did you, or how did you find out that Everton were interested in signing you? I was actually on holiday. I was 32 and I'd just signed a one-year extension of a contract to, with Billy McNeil. In those days, if you reached 33 and you were still at a club and you'd been there for 10 years, you were entitled to a free transfer. I think Howard Kendall, because he had problems with um, Pat Van Den Howe, who had a, a serious ankle injury, he was looking for someone to cover, you know, left back and maybe left-sided midfield. 
So he made an inquiry to, uh, to Manchester City to see if I'd be available. Billy McNeil was away in, uh, with the Scottish BBC because it was um, 1986 was the, the World Cup in South America, I think. Mexico. That's right. So he was away uh, on uh, television duties. So it was Jimmy Frizzell who contacted me. I was at a, a hotel in Devon called the Sorton Sands Hotel and I was with the family. Frizz phoned me up and said, Howard Kendall's made an inquiry. The club are happy to sell you if you want to go. I know you've signed a, a one-year contract. So straight away I thought, well, you know, Billy McNeil must be thinking, he's got Andy Hinchcliffe coming up. The fact that he's willing to sell me to Everton maybe meant my days at City were numbered. So I said, OK. I, I said, uh, but I won't. This was about on the Tuesday of my of a, a week's holiday. So I said, I'm not going to interrupt the family holiday now. I said, I'll speak to Howard Kendall, say, on Friday. So I drove over to um, Belfield, which was Everton's training ground, and I, I met uh, Howard Kendall there. The first thing he said was, what would stop you signing for Everton right now? You know. So I said, well, I'm actually due a loyalty payment, which was built into the contract for players that had been at a club for a long time. This loyalty payment was due on July the 1st. We were now on June the 27th, right? So uh, I said, I will sign for you, but I'm not going to sign until July the 1st so that I get this payment uh, into my bank account. So he said, okay, anything else? So I said, well, I've also had two testimonial games cancelled. I've been at City 13 years and I've had two games uh, against United cancelled for different reasons. He said, OK, well, Everton will play Manchester City in your testimonial game and you can play half for Everton and half for Man City. Is that all right? We'll do that uh, before the season starts. He says, and I'll speak to Billy McNeil now about your loyalty bonus. So I felt a million dollars. I'm, I'm feeling he, he really wants to sign me. You know what I mean? Anyway, he, he, uh, he spoke to Billy McNeil uh, while I was in the room, although Billy McNeil didn't realise that. And, and he said, well... I'm sure my chairman, Mr. Swales, won't pay Paul his uh, loyalty bonus unless he's at the club on July the 1st. Howard said, well, I'm, I want him to sign now while he's here. So he said, well, I don't think he'll get that money. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do then. Everton will pay Paul for being loyal to Manchester City for 13 years. So he paid me the loyalty payment that was due from a contract at City. So, you know, it was like... You know, I couldn't not sign for Everton under those circumstances, really. Uh, and that's what happened. I was very, very fortunate that there were injuries to key players on the left. So when, when Pat Van Den Howe was fit, Kevin Sheedy got injured. So I ended up moving up the pitch and playing left side midfield. And, and that was when uh, it, the day that I moved up the pitch to play left side midfield was when we played against City and I scored um, against. Uh, for Everton against Manchester City, you know, and uh, a lot of my mates were still, so Neil McNabb, Kenny Clements, Mick McCarthy, they were all still playing for City and I, I obviously couldn't run round flailing my arms about when uh, in front of my mates, like, you know, or former mates, if you like. So I just turned around and walked away. Paddy Suckling was in goal that day and I could have saved my shot. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's how poor it was. That was a brilliant Everton team you signed for. How they missed out on the double the previous season when they were probably stronger than Liverpool. 
I yeah. don't know because that was a really strong team. And you mentioned the injuries on the left side. There were injuries all over the place in that team. How they won the league uh, relatively comfortably, given the extensive injuries they had that season, it's a remarkable achievement. Yeah, yeah, but they, they also had a very strong squad as well. I look at Man City now, and it doesn't seem to matter which players go on the pitch. They've got cover all over the place, and we were the same at Everton. I mean, you know, we had um, like Alan Harper didn't didn't play. If he'd have played for any other team, he'd he'd have been in the he'd have been in the side regularly. But you know, there was um, Peter Reid and Paul Bracewell with a with a mainstay at the centre midfield. Uh, and then you know we had Kevin Ratcliffe and uh, Dave Watson were the were the, the centre halves, and Derek Mountfield, who'd uh, who'd been instrumental in a lot of the success of finishing second the, the season before, um, you know, was very limited in the amount of time that he got on the pitch as well. Alan Harper could fill in at right back, so if uh, if Gary Stevens got injured, he, you know, uh, Bertie, well, his nickname was Bertie after Albert Tetlock on uh, Coronation <laughs> Street. But, um, yeah, he, you know, he could fill in all over the place, really. Uh, and then we had, like, Neil Poynton, who could play at left-back, and, you know, I could operate up and down the left side. So there was Adrian Heath and Graham Sharp up front were a great foil for each other. You know, and then when we before we played Manchester City, Sharpie turned around to uh, Inchi and said, well, you know what to do here, he said. I'll take Mick McCarthy out of the way because Mick McCarthy was a, was a, a great uh, centre half, but always wanted to get involved in a tussle with the big centre forward. Like you know, he, he saw it as a, a bit of a macho thing. Like if he won that battle, <laughs> if he if he won that battle, he'd win. We win the game, you know. So Sharpie used to run him into areas out of the way. Mick McCarthy would go and uh, go and follow him, and then Inch would get in the hole that Sharpie had left him. And they, they, they're saying this in, in the game before. And, of course, I'd played for City for 13 seasons before this game and uh, never realised that that's how other teams perceived, you know, uh, and how clever strikers will uh, make the most of opportunities that are pre- presented by uh, other players' strengths, if you like, and weaknesses, perhaps. I ended up playing 40 games for Everton that, that season. I missed the last two games because I had to go into hospital for um, a knee operation. And then I, I think I ended up playing about 11 games a season after. And then I went on to the coaching staff. Uh, Colin Harvey invited me onto the coaching staff. Do you think as a Mancunian that it was vital you made a good start when you were playing for a Scouse club, just, just to have the fans accept you? I never thought about it at the time. It never even crossed my mind. I thought the main rivalry between Scousers and Manx was uh, United and Liverpool rather than City and Everton, like, you know, but bearing in mind what happened to um, Phil Neville later on when he went from Manchester United to Everton, I think he might have had more of a problem because he'd come from United yeah. and played for Everton and didn't start particularly well and then came in for a bit of stick. Because I'd got off to a good start uh, and the team were doing really well, I think the supporters were quite willing to um, forgive anything I actually won Player of the Year jointly with uh, Kevin Ratcliffe that year, the, the year that we won the uh, we won the league. So, you know, if they did have any forebodings, the supporters at the beginning of the season, they'd lost them by the end of the season. Winning a league medal 
a championship medal in 87, seeing what it took to be winners. Did that tell you anything about, say, the best City teams you played in, such as the 76, 77 runners-up? In did it, did it show you maybe what City might have been missing at that time? Uh, not really, because I think City had never really been a top team. We didn't set the world alight. We never won the we never won the title. Uh, Everton had been knocking on the door for you know a couple of seasons prior to me getting there, and I was so lucky that I you know I ended up signing for a club that had top players like Peter Reid and Dave Watson, Neville Southall, uh, Graham Sharp, Adrian Heath. I was just a, a sort of a an add-on, if you like, to a successful team anyway. I was just lucky that uh, uh, that things turned out the way they did. Although that City that, that city team that you refer to had some great players as well, but probably not the strength in depth that Everton had. So they could bring players off the bench that would, you know, slot into any position really and not weaken the team that was on the pitch. So I think that might have been the biggest difference. And I think at the age of 40, still only 40 years old, he's won two titles with Everton. Howard Kendall leaves in 87. Everton, at the time, arguably the best team in Europe. The club doesn't really recover from that, does it? The Colin Harvey stepping in, that makes complete sense, appointing from within. But that doesn't work out either. Was Colin Harvey, much like Malcolm Allison, maybe more suited to coaching rather than managing? Um, you're probably right. I mean, he, but Colin was a was an innovative coach, very popular uh, in the dressing room. You know, as was Howard, probably because they were winning lots of games. And uh, you know, if your manager and your team's winning, the players accept you. It's when you start losing that you you have a few problems. Howard was an outgoing personality. He'd come in the dressing room and he'd stand in the middle of the dressing room and tell jokes. You know. Most managers that try to do that, they get slaughtered by the players and get out, clear off, go and see the physio, you know. But Colin wasn't like that. Colin was more serious, more of a thinker about the game. I think the club as well could have uh, could have supported Colin better than they did because they allowed players to leave the club. Players that had been really uh, part of that successful era. You know, Reedy went to QPR, Trevor Stephen left. Uh, Gary Stevens left. These were international players and it was obviously going to weaken uh, the side went by them moving on. But I think the club decided that they'd get the best money for those players at the time while they were uh, at the top of the tree, if you were. And the players that came along and replaced them, like Stuart McCall, replaced Reedy, good good young player, but, but not the same uh, experience as Peter Reed. Paul Bracewell never really recovered from his uh, uh, from his knee injury. They brought in uh, Wayne Clark, who probably couldn't do the same job as as uh, Sharpie. Sharpie went off to Oldham, as I remember. And so, so really, the club uh, allowed players to uh, to leave en masse, too many at one time, and uh, I don't think they did Colin any favours in that regard. Much is made when you when you read interviews or books on that particular time at Everton. Much is made of the divisions between Kendall's players and Colin Harvey's new signings. Why did the two fail to come together? I mean, 
you were part of a city side or various city sides that were full of youth and experience and similar stories didn't come out of city of, of the various age groups or, or or cliques failing to come together but at Everton even now 30 years later you know I've interviewed former Everton players and they will mention that. I think you're right it, it almost became a split dressing room I mean players like Martin Keown and uh and uh, Stuart McCall, Pat Nevin, all, all really great, talented players, but they didn't, they didn't fit. In, like, so Pat Nevin had tremendous ability on the ball, and when I played against him when he was at Chelsea, he, he always caused me problems because uh, he had such quick feet. But he wasn't one that would uh, make a run past the full-back and then whip across him, which is what... Uh, Graham Sharp thrived on. He, he thrived on that sort of service, you know. He'd be making runs into the box. We had Pat Nevin on one side and Peter Beagrey on the other side. Two talented wingers, but the ball never went into the box. It, you know, Sharpie would be making runs into the box and then they, they'd be uh, intent on, on uh, maybe beating the defender more than once, you know. So what they had in the past, more direct stuff from Trevor Stephen, from Kevin Sheedy, um, you know, wasn't quite there anymore. So the, the the players that had thrived in the old squad were were feeling a little bit deprived of service in the new squad, and I, I think it did cause a little bit of. I know they they used to go out after. Uh, I was never involved in that because I I used to go back to Manchester, but all the all the players that lived in Southport and most of the players tended to congregate around the Southport area. Uh, they'd go out uh, sort of after games and there was always, after a few beers, there, there might be a, a few arguments and it, and it just escalated. Dave Watson and Kevin Ratcliffe maybe didn't accept Martin Keown the way that, that they should have done, you know. And I don't know, it, it, it certainly wasn't jealousy, but because they'd had so much success in previous years and then all of a sudden when Colin became manager and there were so many new faces, uh, they weren't able to maintain that pressure on Liverpool and the other teams that were at the top of the league. You know, there was maybe a little bit of resentment, although not with the individuals, but with the situation. As someone who played in both the Merseyside derby and the Manchester derby, how do you compare those two games, those two derbies? Differently. I, I would say differently because... There were families in Liverpool that would have uh, Evertonians and Liverpudlians in the same family. Brothers would be blue and red and live together because they'd been used to uh, both their teams having success. After the 60s, the Bell Lee Summerbit era, City's supporters hadn't seen that sort of success for a lot of years. And United, under Brian Robson and uh, Norman Whiteside and others, were uh, you know were, were beginning to win things regularly, so I think there was more hatred between hatreds maybe a um, too strong a word, but between the city and United fans there was there was more separation uh, than there was between Liverpool and uh, Everton. Sometimes the the, uh, the games at Goodison and Anfield could be quite a friendly atmosphere you know, between the two, uh, whereas they were never, ever friendly uh, between 
uh, City and United, you know, uh, because they'd never shared a period of success together. You coached for a couple of years at Everton and then uh, Colin Harvey in late 90, he sacked Howard Kendall returns. Your time at Everton comes to an end. Had you ever been tempted to try your luck as a manager? Yeah, 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 I did. And um, But I actually went back to City because when uh, Howard Kendall took the job at Everton, he left Manchester City to do, to uh, to become manager of Everton. So I went back to City after I'd lost my job at Everton and I just, I didn't directly uh, apply for the job. I just spoke to Peter Swales and people around the club you know, to see whether it'd be worthwhile my playing. I didn't have any experience, very limited experience coaching as well, because my career had just as a player had just finished. I didn't get the encouragement that I was looking for. So then it was a question of, do I apply for a job at Rochdale or Oldham, where I might get, you know, I might get uh, consideration as a, as a, a young former uh, player, or do I step out of football and go into something that is a little bit more certain? You know, I had a young family at the time. Uh, I couldn't afford to be out of work for a long period of time. Everton had paid me off, but, you know, it wasn't a fortune. I had the opportunity of uh, joining the community programme in professional football, which was a, a new sort of organisation, if you like, of all the footballing authorities. It was a, a PFA initiative. But the FA, the Football League, were they, they were all involved. Like so, there was an opportunity to get a job as an area manager in the uh, football and community program, working for the PFA. Well, it was the FFE and VTS, which was the education arm of the PFA. And Mickey Burns, if you remember Mickey Burns, who was a uh, a good little winger, played for uh, Middlesbrough, Newcastle, and others. He was head of that uh, particular project. And uh, I was invited to apply for one of these jobs as area manager for the North West position, which actually included Manchester City and Everton as the clubs that I would have had responsibility for. So Alex Williams was the community development at, uh, development officer at Manchester City. And it was, um, oh my goodness, little, little blonde, little blonde uh, midfield player who... Uh, his his nephew plays for Everton now. Oh, I know the the nephew is Tom Davis, isn't it? I can't yeah, remember yeah, the name yeah. of his uncle. I know who you're talking about, though. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, I can't, I can't remember his name anyway. Um, he was the he was the community officer at Everton at the time, but didn't stay very long. Hence, I can't remember his name. So, yeah. So I enjoyed I enjoyed that uh, that that job. And when I went to Everton to speak to the community officer, and Howard saw me. And he saw me giving out a load of tracksuits to the to the staff in the community program. And he said to me, "Listen, I'm looking for a a fitness coach to come and work alongside players uh, that are injured and bring them back to full fitness. Are you interested?" And I said, "I just applied for this job and got it, and I was secure. And uh, you know, really, that opportunity had passed me by. So I decided." Uh, that I'd stay where I was and uh, had no, absolutely no regrets about that at all. Although I would have been delighted to go and work with Howard again, like, you know, because he was a, a person that I really respected.
Thank you to Paul Power for his time. By the way, before I forget, I looked up the name of that former Everton player that neither Paul nor I could recall at the end of the interview. That was Alan Whittle. There'll be links in the show notes to several of the games mentioned. There's the Halifax FA Cup tie on what is, even for the time, an exceptionally boggy pitch. There's the City v Norwich FA Cup clash of 1981, worth watching to the end to see how John Bond actually clambers down from his position in the stands. I'd completely forgotten what an unusual exit that was. And I'm also posting a link to the semi-final goal at Villa Park. There's so much to enjoy about that game. A non-Wembley semi-final venue, both sides wearing away strips, which was common in the FA Cup at that time in the latter stages. And there is, of course, the fact that one of my favourite players of that era scored a goal fit to win a final. Appreciate you guys listening. Do please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you download it from and uh, share and retweet, repost, etc. Social media links, reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially critical, as I said last week. In fact, they are all important, particularly to one-man shows like this. This show doesn't have the resources of the bigger shows. If you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. It will increase this show's visibility in the Apple Podcast store and help me to keep the show going the podcast can be followed on both twitter and instagram at shorts were short and facebook.com forward slash shorts were short if you want to join the group page please do all my work can be found at danielruiztizen.com appreciate your time the artwork is by tom hadfield the music is 80 synth pop by toto cyberspace i've been daniel ruiz tyson this has been when shorts were short If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. 